Okay, so always bad question. What did this do for you? Things in particular about Ecclesiastes that you liked or stimulated your thinking or bothered you? It stimulated my thinking. In what ways? Well, um, as I said before here, I've not read a lot of books, so this is a good big introduction. Um, I guess it's just the, the reality of that good and bad in life. I mean, it's, it, it just is. Um, and, and maybe some of it comes from being older and, and being at a time when you're reflecting about your life. And uh, you can look back and see those two extremes and all, all over you know, from, from early. So I think it just allowed me or encouraged me to reflect about my own life um, and, and see that as as reality and just, you know, sort of it shapes, it shaped, in the end it has shaped a lot of who I am, mm -hmm. what I am, I, I, I don't know what that means, let me see this one. There's one that disturbs me, and it's kind of a thing, uh, 728. Uh, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. A little bit of that discrimination against yeah. women again, and, and going back to what you were covering in the Proverbs, one woman both represents uh, folly and wisdom. Yeah, thank you. Hmm. Although men haven't done a lot better than one out of a thousand. Yeah, I would say that one out of a thousand is still better than zero out of a thousand. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things that struck um, me um, is there's also a sense of hopelessness in this because why is this guy dead? He could not come up with any kind of satisfactory answer, which really clearly points to reflect to me that unless something's involved, it's not going to ever be satisfactory. Hmm. Um, the thing is this, you know, um, one of the things that I have learned throughout my life is that if God is not at the center of my life, then it's just going to be not really good. But with God at my center, uh, there are also hard times. That's true. But the point is this, is that we've got, God comes first in our, in our thinking. And um, I see uh, the troubles of the world today is that people are consuming things outside so much. So things of the world that the Bible refers to. And where's God? Hmm. And because we, we have to, we pretty well just are destroying the earth. Look at the horrible fires in California. Look at the floods and hurricanes and floods. You know, and there's, there's just all kinds of things going on in the justice system. I mean, you look at the government. You look at people being so critical of one another. Where is God in all of that? And if we need to pay attention because God made us to love God, to be friends with God, to be in relationship with God. And if we're not doing that, and, he, and also God made us 
to love us and to love God. And so unless that relationship is there, we're not, you know, things will, life will be much harder. Hmm. I'm not sure I found that in this book. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm saying what is missing in this book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You say this is missing? This is, that's what you just said. But I don't see God as really being the center here. It tells, you know, fear God, you know, do God's will. But it doesn't talk about developing a, you know, turning to God in those times when everything seems so hopeless. Something that bothers me, I guess, from, and it's not just in this book, but it, it is in this book, and it's the term fear God. I've never been able to quite get my hands around that. Um, now, when I say, it, is, is the word fear in Hebrew some different definition? Um, um, I, 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 that's tough. It's always translated fear, almost. I mean, um, if you don't mind, I'm just going to... I'm just going to check one and see if I get a different translation that's not in my head. I've also learned that it means awe. 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 Well, that I, can, that I yeah. get. Yeah. Or holy I get. But fear. It sounds... Well, there's a certain... Well, um, there's no such thing. But is there such a thing as a healthy fear? I don't know that it means that, but I always thought of it more as respect than the fear. Mm. But that's my own translation. Well, you know, not yeah, the, no. I mean, yeah. God is love. We're fear in that. You know, the, 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 real proverb, the real problem with this uh, translation is that every... If you look up the Hebrew word in the lexicon for yure, which is, which is the word, you, you're, going to get, you're going to get fear in, in the Hebrew-English lexicon. So we just got to think about this for a second. Um... Uh, no, I, I mean, the, 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 the proverb that we would have read last week says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And in Hebrew, that word is yare, which is the, uh, that. But if, I'm telling you, if you go to what's called the, the Brown Driver Briggs Lexicon, which is Hebrew to English, and it's based on word count, and it should, gives you every time the word's used, in Hebrew, the English equivalent it's going to give you is in fact this word fear. So you kind of have to backpedal from that, and that starts to get on shaky ground because you might say, I don't like that word, uh, and I, I don't think we should be afraid of God. It's definitely not the word terror. That's a different word. So uh, I, have, I have heard this word awe, uh, and I think if we... I probably should have been more prepared to do this if I were to look into the, um, oh man, what's that resource? The, is it the Oxford Dictionary? The one that tells you, maybe it's the Oxford Annotated Dictionary, the one that, uh, yeah, I wonder if that's it, that would, would sort of say where the word came from. If we think about fear, the etymology in English, that's probably important, and I haven't done that. But I, but I do wonder about this all business. 
because all is something else too. Like, is it all that you'd have in front of a monarch, or is it all like in the sense of wonder? Now, well, my theology says it's about wonder, but I don't know if that's historically accurate. You know, I mean, I just, I, I, I do. I, I wish, I wish it were abundantly clear that that wonder in the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I, wi- I wanted to say that. But I don't know that that's what it says. I just have to be clear. That's just what I wanted to say. <laughs> you know if you pronounce Y-A-R-E-H as Yahweh? No, no, it's not. No, 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 no. This, has a, this is an R sound. Ruh. That's a hard one. That's a hard R. Yeah, and you can't. That, that's hard. That, that R sound, Ruh, is way too rough to be in the breath. Um, so I don't know what to do about this. I mean, I do think we still are grappling uh, with the idea of what wisdom is. And Proverbs said one thing, and we talked about, hey, is that different from shrewdness or whatever? And we're still going to try to parse this out. Um, is being afraid of God... I mean, I do want to say, if the text says being afraid of God is the beginning of wisdom, I'm going to disagree with it. But it could be because I'm foolish. It could be, but I just refuse to accept that that's wise, particularly because we have other voices in our scripture, like in uh, 1 John, that say true love drives out all fear. So if the, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then true love drives out all fear, and therefore all wisdom and follies to be preferred to wisdom, which I, I don't think that's right. <laughs> does, does that sort of make sense? Is, is, if, if you will, is maybe the term fear of God a human thing? In other words, what I mean is that people feel I have to fear God, but it's not a, it's not a God thing. God does not want us to fear Him. Or it's, I, God does not want Him to fear. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And the, I, the essence of, of God... So what I need to do is track down fear in the Oxford English Dictionary. That's the one it is. Do you know about the Oxford English Dictionary? This is like a huge deal where it not only says like, hey, this word means this, but it, but it highlights in literature examples of how that word means that. This was a huge undertaking, uh, mostly done by somebody who had a lifelong jail sentence. Um, <laughs> this is true. Uh, I mean, and the thing is, like, huge. The volume's huge. It's online. I just, I need to look at this and see what fear does there. But, but I would say, if I'm talking about what I think is wise... <laughs> I mean, wonder is a really interesting thing we don't really talk about that, that might be a better word than awe. Usually awe comes, could, could mean like, oh, that's great, but it could also be from, a, from this totally in, inferior status. So I don't know. Um, the fear of the Lord. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I just looked it up in my Bible dictionary, and it does mean, like, the translations, it is fear or, like, terror mm. and dread. The, like, but I think they, it kind of goes on to, but a fear of the magnificence and wonder, and like a, of the Lord, like, is it, from a human perspective. Is it That's maybe, how he described it. Is it maybe, it's so big that, can you, can you be afraid of something that's so, yeah. so, so wonderful, so that you just don't understand it, you know, again, it doesn't. 
That, that's my simile. I grew up across from Canada and had a lot of Canadian friends, and they said even though the United States is wonderful and they've always been a good friend of ours, it's still like sleeping next to an elephant. You might be sleeping peacefully, but that elephant moves just a little bit. It's, it's, it's hard on you. So that, that has always been my kind of thinking. It, because God is so powerful and so big, his slightest move could have an impact on us. Do you think, do you think it could be, because the Bible was written from a very paternalistic viewpoint that you feel your father? Could be, sure. And so, oh, we just take that and ascribe the, you know, the father to God. I try very hard not to put a gender on God. Yeah, very hard. That gets real tricky sometimes, doesn't it? me? That gets real tricky sometimes, doesn't it? To me, worldwide, not just in the Christian world, we've traveled a lot, spent a lot of time in India, and some time in Africa, but India, because of their religious beliefs, they don't have God like we think of God, but Buddha or, or whatever way they all know. But they're still, they're still, they still have a level of awe. Yes. And the way they behave, and the way they move, and the way they, they wow. worship. So I, I think it's a human. No matter where you go, people, not just in Christianity, uh, maybe we all need, or somehow, have to have that sense of wonder. So I'm not sure. We don't really move with a lot of reverence when it comes to God. You know, and there are certain individuals. We do, but basically, with the way that our society is set up today, you don't have time to think that But even sometimes, don't you just look out at a sunrise? We have birds here, and these birds come out, and you just sit stand there and look out the window. And yeah, but some people have there's a wonder about that. Yeah, and some people have that privilege. But I'm talking about the people in the cities where they don't see all that. It's just that the way that our world is set up, you know, it's so fast-paced and it's be successful, you know, and all this other stuff that you're striving for. And um, yeah. so I just, I just see society too busy for God. Except, thank God, there are people who do pay attention to God. And the church has always been the history of the honor. Those that are faithful to God and praise so the rest of the world not can destroy. You, you, you know that hmm. it's kind of hard to reconcile with the with the idea that vanity is you know I call vanity and in the end we all die. Yeah, I think that's a really important perspective. One last thought, I did look in the OED really fast, sorry to be distracted. And it seems like, you know, obviously there's like dread and trembling, but there is like the third definition, which is that fear is a mixture of dread and reverence. My experience of God has been an immense compassion beyond my understanding. And the other thing is that God is always present with you. So those two things kind of make this one bearable, you know. Yeah, I I, uh, I think this is so interesting maybe to sit for a minute on, particularly when we read Job. I mean, Job does have some major dread of God. <laughs> um, and, and interestingly enough, some reverence. So in that sense, Job is, 
is fearful. I mean, just from my own perspective, I grew up an evangelical, so we were taught that God loves us, but God will send us to hell forever if we don't get it right. So I want to say probably my relationship to God for the longest time was about dread. So God will love me, but God will spank me forever was sort of the thing. Um, God, that's dreadful. Sorry, that's really dreadful. Um, I, I do think there's moments in life where I really try to, and I, and I get to do this as a priest with people all the time, like, hey, if God is good, like, why, are my, why do my children have this mental illness? Or, hey, if God's good, like, why does these things continue to still happen to me? Because I'm not, like, doing stuff. And um, I've got folks that, you know, they just can't seem to figure out, and I can't either, how it is that calamities happen to us undeservedly. And when you think that God is all caught up in that, there's a little bit of dread. Let's just be honest, right? I mean, ultimately, the way I get out of that is I say, well, God's not doing that to you. It's sort of just happening. But God is with you, helping you through it. Maybe helping. I mean, I mean, I, that's debatable. Sometimes I think it's like, well, God's help doesn't seem to be doing much honestly. Um, and, and if God's suffering with me, great, but what I don't need is someone to like suffer with me. I need someone to fix it. So like I, I, I've got those moments in my own life and they're darn real, you know? So I, I think maybe it's worth not jumping to wiggling out of these problems here. I think the book is actually trying to say one of the things we love to do religiously is Martin Heidegger's biggest concern with religion <laughs> And it's called escapism. Uh I don't know if you know Heidegger. Uh, Heidegger says religion in general tends to be a crutch for people who refuse to confront and deal with their own mortality. So we're all going to die, and that's uncomfortable for many of us as human beings. So what we try to do is come up with a way to make that hurt less. Like, well, we'll die, but then we'll live forever, so we didn't really die. No, no, no. I think escapism is when we say everything happens for a reason. It'll all be okay. That's when we escape things like grief and tragedy and where the hell is God right now? I think think that's... The book, I think, um, is actually begging us to think about what if there was no eternality? Clearly the author doesn't believe in one. If there was no eternality, how do we orient our life in such a way that there's actual meaning, not just made-up meaning? It's a kind of a good and dark question, if you don't mind me saying. It's good and it's dark. Totally trust God. It wasn't easy learning that 
But even no matter what I've been through in the last 20 years, even Harvey and all that, only by trusting God and resting in God did I get through all of that. And, but that comes from years of having a, a specific prayer life, paradigm every day, and th thinking about the teachings of Jesus and trying to live them. Because, but the prayer section is the important part because there God works with us. And over time, if we are faithful to God, then God makes changes in us where it becomes easier to trust God. Now, in trusting God, that didn't mean that bad things didn't happen. But I just knew I could do them, that I was in God's hands. And that is a, um, that's, you know, it's just hard for most people to learn something like that. But there's no meaning to, if you're just going to be thinking about what this guy's writing about. The only way life makes any sense to me is that God and I have a relationship. And that, yes, I've told God about it. Yeah, so, so that is a relationship. That's part of the relationship. Right. Yeah, I, I actually think there's quite a bit of meaning in this book, God aside, if it's okay to say. Um, I mean, I, I, I think, um, quite honestly, um, this guy is, is asking a really important question that I think many fundamentalists honestly skip because of escapism. If there were no heaven, would, would you have any faith? If this is all you get, what's important? But it, it, do you have, a, is God available while you're alive? Or is it you just don't have God? I, I, I would like to push back on what you're saying a little bit. Because mm -hmm. I, I feel this book is very, um, brings a lot of peace to me mm -hmm. and brings me closer to God. And I find God there. Okay. And earlier you mentioned that people today, where is God in the world today? I think God was missing from a lot of people's lives in the time that this book was written, yes. and that's why it was written. Yeah, but it's missing and, today, too. Oh, please, well, please. And so I think it's, for me, I really like its placement in the, in the Old mm. Testament after Proverbs. <clears throat> because for me, Proverbs was like, um, I mean, even if I step back in time and placed it in a historical context, it was like anathema to me. What? Anathema. Sorry. I'm a... English is not my first language. Um, and so... And that's a Greek word, so you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so, I, you know, as a child, and also you mentioned that as you're older that you kind of think about this, this was actually a really big problem for me as a child. So why does evil exist in the world if if God is is an active agent? I, mean, I didn't, wasn't thinking that. I was like, well, if God created everything, and then there's evil, well, well, then He created evil, right? And I would spend um, a lot of time at night, you know, praying, and then I'd go through this, you know, I would be asking and pleading with God to protect my family. Then I started to realize that what I really need to do is start praying for everyone on earth and I would spend like going through a list of all the things that I needed to pray for to make sure that God was hearing my message. And so if I could just continue on. Um, so that was like the major part of my own spiritual journey is trying to reconcile evil um, and, and God. And, and it really, um, this book for me is, is just helps me reconcile that because um, it, and I really take it all back to Genesis in that 
you know, there was void, and God created the world for a purpose, and it was good, and that purpose was for his to be his creation. And I'm sorry to use the pronoun here, but you're I fine. Just, you're fine. Have it. You're yeah. fine. Um, you're fine. That it, it's his creation, and that it was good, and that he created us in his image. And for me, that means that we have intellect and free will, and we can make choices. And so, and 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 that is how he created us. That is how he created the world. And so, for me, this book really calls upon us to, um, you know, to 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 seek wisdom. Um, but specifically to align us, to align ourselves with God, um, with His commandments, the, and the laws of the of the world which He created, and that this gives us a meaningful existence, um, and and that if you align yourself in this way, you kind of have these naturally arising moral sentiments, um, and that especially when you balance them. With a recognition of our kind of, uh, you know, temporal existence, and um, you know, I, I, the part for me that I kind of had to stop when I was reading the book um, is where he speaks, uh, or where the author speaks about, you know, God enables some to enjoy, you know, uh, eat, drink, and be merry, essentially, and then there are those who are not enabled to do this, and. You know, as I was reading it, I had to stop myself because I said, oh, how am I reading this? I'm reading it like, you know, I, I do IT work, so I'm like, you know, for a moment I was like, you know, I'm kinda, I went back to how I used to think about it as a child, like God is this giant, uh, you know, this magnificent, unfathomable engineer who's, you know, like a clockworker working through and intervening here and intervening there and he's building everything. And, and that's, I think, um, it, there's, a, there's a pit there if you're, if you're thinking like that. Um, I, I, I'm not saying that you can't um, hold on to the paradigm that uh, God intervenes in the world. I'm not saying that he's a non-intervening God, um, or you can still hold on that, that, to that position, but that, um, you know, the enabling is not being done by him. It's something that we choose. We choose to en enable ourselves through God, and so I think that that's kind of what this book is saying. I'll stop there because I can just. So this book was really important to me, and I found God there. This is probably for me next to Genesis the most important book. I felt I got to read it more times. Oh, we're going to read it for next week. We're going to read it again. Uh, yeah. I'm, it was I. There was so much in that book mm -hmm. that I just had. I felt good grief. Uh, I've got to go over this again. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you one thing, and that's in my mind. I've I've you know read through the this book for the other yeah. weeks. And I've looked at the questions, and, and this time the questions are meaningful. Yeah. And I think it's worth reviewing something. Good, good. Well, let me give you a couple of thoughts. You know there's this guy named Abel in Genesis chapter 5? 
child of Adam and Eve, and he has his brother Cain. And Abel means, and he shows up for about long, and he's gone. And that's the word vanity. Vanity is not really a good translation, and it doesn't mean a deep breath. It means like a just a really short breath. So, like. Not a diaphragm, tummy breath, like a hyperventilating. And everything's that. Everything's just short. That's the contention here. It's an interesting thing, I think, to think about. You talked about as you age, to think about the things that kept us up all night when we were younger, even if that was last week. And all that worry we spent on those things we had no control over, and all that stuff was really just... But we acted like it was... (gasps) You know, this deep, huge breath, you know? And as I get older, I know I appear to be very young, um, and probably still am in many ways, um, you get that perspective taking. I mean, I just don't have time to worry about that. There's no fruit in worrying about that. And even as you grow in relationships, you know, like I have relationships in which I was so dedicated to making the other person happy. And as I've grown increasingly, I've tried to realize that it's not my job to make somebody else happy. What a waste of life. Because even when successful, it lasts about this long. And there I am trying to do it again. And really, another person's happiness is up to them, not to me. So why have I wasted so much time? And, and I think in some ways the book offers us, it could be futile, but I think actually it's saying um, certain actions are futile, so quit them. <laughs> Spend your time on things that are not futile. Interestingly enough, this phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, uh, for tomorrow you may die, sure enough comes somewhat out of this, but obviously it doesn't mean something like gluttony, because we all know that if you overeat, you don't feel good. (laughs) And um, Epicureans get this really bad thing that it's all about good food. Epicureans actually uh, really were proponents of moderation, because again, if you eat foie gras three times a day, you're, you're, you're going to feel terrible. So there's really no enjoyment in that. I mean, really, it's about finding the right balance. And John and I were talking about this the other day. In my mind, the difference between a good meal and a great meal is your state of mind, not the quality of the food. The difference between a really good wine and a great wine is not the price per bottle. It's where you were mentally and socially when you were drinking it. No wine tastes great when you're the only one in the room with it. I don't think so, anyway. I mean, it it may taste good in your mouth, but community enhances the flavor of it. I mean, this is, I think, part of what the book is trying to suggest is not just eat the best food you can, it's how can you savor rudimentary things like eating and drinking and working, because we get that. Enjoy your work. I mean, he says, I don't know what to tell you to do, except the author does say, eat, drink, and enjoy your work. I mean, enjoy that stuff. 
There is a way to look at it, and I can tell you laundry to me is the most futile thing that I do because it's just going to get dirty again. Like there's very no satisfaction for me in washing dishes or doing laundry. I just want you to know that. Cooking I get some more satisfaction in because there's like community time that comes out of it. Uh, possibly, not always. Cooking for kids usually not real enjoyable. But um, there's, there is futility in certain regularity. Futility. Um, but then there's also opportunity in the middle of feudal regularity to say, like, this is a rhythm of life and community. And I, and I think the book actually raises that question. Um, it doesn't say it's all meaningless, but I think maybe the book says it can be meaningless. And part of that is contingent upon, frankly, our approach. I don't know if that's right for you or not. Sometimes, you know, it's just, uh, you begin to, gosh, you know, this is repetitive. But the fact that we're together and we have a comfortable place and we really like who we are and, and so we enjoy what we do. Uh, last couple of days has been so cold, we had a fire going on. Yep. And, and it was like, oh, we're just sitting here and we're reading and talking about what we're, there's just little things, but If I made three bullet points, number one, seize the moment. Whatever it is right now, don't worry about tomorrow, don't, don't fret about the past. Number two, uh, on uh, the uh, public television the other day, they discovered worms uh, two miles down below Africa. And they're trying to get into reasons why it is. And it seems to me so much of man's search right now is to try to disprove that there's a God. And it's such futility because you keep on discovering new things all the time that says that there is a God. And, and then the, the third thing that really strikes me is all the self-help books that we are put upon us and we got to read, we got to help. It's futility. It, it's still seize the moment, realize that God is in your life, and that uh, why rush about trying to look for something because we are in the image of God and that gives us the ability to see things maybe that other creatures don't but we also see the futility of it. Hmm. See, we're making our own Ecclesiastes here. I mean, again, we're, what we're trying to do is come up with what wisdom looks like for us, right? Uh, and, and, and I think that's a really fair bit to do. I, I think that what the book does sort of suggest that I think is helpful is that wise people and fools all die. Yes, that's right. And in the mind of the author, and I, and I, you can say we've got a different theology than this. In the author's mind, wise or foolish, when you die, you're going to the same place. It's called Sheol or the pit or the grave. So it's, it's, it's not this... Uh, justice happens after we die model that we've accepted over the last thousand years. That's sort of how new that idea is. In general, we think you, your afterlife, you get what you pay for. This author says, nope, everyone gets the same one. And I think then he begs a question that I think is really critical. What difference does your faith make for your life? And don't jump to after your death. What difference does your faith make for your life? Um, and I do think there's this interesting bit here about 
And maybe there's a little bit of humility, or maybe just because I'm like sometimes have my own cynicism. I don't want to say that faith enriches everybody's life. I, I think it can. I'm not even sure that there's absolutes. In general, most days I choose to believe, and I think that's a good think thing to think. Why do you choose to believe or not? Because the truth is, it's your choice. <laughs> Which is an interesting way to think about it. Some people say, no, I have no choice. In fact, you do. In fact, you do have, have a choice. Um, and, and why is it that we choose to do this? And, you know, so for me, when I think about things, I, I sort of think that um, maybe against this author a little bit, I, I choose to think there are certain things that do, that do live after me, and that is whether or not I, I have given life to other people. He does raise the concern. The author raises the concern. Well, you know, you could try to accrue a bunch of resources for, for an organization, and that could be vanity because the person who manages them might squander them. You have no guarantee what people will do with your resources for wisdom or folly. That's a fair, fair point. Don't you think? I choose to believe that what matters is not what they do with them, but whether or not I share them. So this is one of those questions we encounter often when we think about how do we help poor people? Here's somebody asking me for resources on the street. If I give them money, they might buy alcohol or drugs. I would be hurting them to give them money. And I want to suggest that often we talk ourselves out of giving any help because we don't want to give bad help. And there's this other side is, you know, uh, if we choose to be tight-fisted because they may not do the right thing, that's also a reflect, reflection, sorry, on our own greed. <laughs> Ultimately, who's responsible on what people do with what they have? They are. Who's responsible for whether we share or not? We are. It's not that there's a clear answer there, but, but I think the book is asking us to ask those sorts of those sorts of questions. I could be off base. I'm not sure I know what faith is. Yeah, I think we all struggle with that. And I can honestly say in the interest of self-disclosure that, that I don't... I would have to say I'm probably either not faithless. I'm never faithless. I'm either neutral or I have faith, but I'm more, way more neutral than during the time than when I had faith. Well, I think we just go through life and, you know, we think of faith at particular times, but during the daytime, I, you know, I don't think about that. And then, then, and that's where I, that's kind of yeah. where I come yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you're in the you made your intentions in the morning and you carry those out for the day. So God is still with you. Yeah. But, yeah. but I do struggle with things like, you know, you know, how is there a Hitler or how is there yeah. no, I mean look, I mean how do these things happen? Um, you know, there's a very interesting book by a guy by the name of John Hicks, Evil and God of Love, trying to explain how all these bad things could be happening. I don't know. And, you know, right here, kind of, 
said to me, we're all going to die. And the bad guys die, the good guys die, and, you know, so what happened? I once read that faith and trust go hand in hand. In other words, if you believe in God, there has to be something. Well, well, I guess it doesn't have to be. But if you really trust God, then you have faith in God, too. That helps your faith. But, and I also, yeah, I, I get real perturbed with God about some things that have happened, but I also come to the conclusion that, you know, God doesn't do necessarily do those things because if, if people, if we don't listen to God, eventually He's just going to go do our thing and we'll just create all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And Martin Luther is the one who taught the people to hate the Jews and Germans. People did not need him to teach them that. They already knew how to do it. I think this is a great thought, though. You know, so we could say faith is trust, but trust in God to do what? To listen to you when you pray? to give you what you ask for, to accompany you on life's journey as an invisible partner? I mean, I, I think that's really a good question. What, what, is, what, is, what is faith, and what does it mean to be faithful? I mean, you know, in human relationships, faithful means trustworthy in the positive way. You know, like it's a positive trustworthy. I have people that I trust negatively. Like, I, I absolutely know what they're going to do in situations A, B, and C pretty much all the time, and it's always negative. And so I do trust them, and they're very... Consistent? They're consistent, uh, but I don't want to say that they're faithful, because to me, faith is like a positive. Uh -huh. They're extremely trustworthy, but it's not positive. So, so faithfulness in God, right, is this sort of choice to trust in God, but again, for what? That, that God exists, like I choose to trust that, um, and in what way? I mean, I think that's a good, that's a good question to, to think about. Um, well, you know, one of the questions that I have, that have come to me in moments of perhaps weakness is, what is the point? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And you know what's interesting, just stepping back from... Um, my, my first little job when I was in seminary was to be a chaplain at a um, Narcotics Anonymous inpatient rehab facility for homeless black crack addicts. And I was 21 and I'd never seen drugs nor used them, and, and there I was. And you know, step one is we admit that our lives had, uh, we were powerless over our own lives and we turned our lives over to a higher power. Now this was a Christian organization, but higher power is the first step because you could be Muslim or you could be Buddhist or you could be none of the above, but if you didn't believe that there was anything greater than yourself, well, then there is no higher power and the 12 steps really don't work. Interestingly enough, I, I can see things greater than myself really easily and I think the negative ones are the easier ones to spot, like racism. That's greater than any one person. Like it is this, if, it's not like a demon out there, but it is sort of like 
this reality that's greater than I can stop. And, and let's just be honest, like it, it has formed every one of us in ways that we have to like resist the rest of our lives, but it's like has this power over the way we're imprinted. The same, I think, with ageism and sexism and denominationalism and um, tribalism, which is what I'd call politics as practice now, you know? So, like, we see these other bits. So maybe faith is this admission. There is something greater than ourselves that's also positive. So those are the negative bits greater than ourselves. Uh, the, the Bible has the word principalities and powers for those. Um, these other things, though, are things like faith, hope, love. Those are things greater than ourselves, right? Or generosity or forgiveness or respect. I mean, those ultimately are, are also powers greater than any one human being, I, I think. Um, so maybe, maybe part of this could just be, even in the middle of uncertainty, I sort of have chosen to believe that those things greater than, greater than humanity that are beneficial exist. Sometimes I just call those things God, but sometimes I call those ways approaching God. <laughs> I'm not really sure how they're different, though, if that makes sense. Good and there's bad, and one cannot exist without the other. And you know, like, how can you even know what love is without hate? You know, and so I feel like there's an opposite for everything, and that God isn't at all, and you appreciate one because of the other. I think that's I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair, and in that sense, right? Like. For me, um, some of the stories are not even things like I necessarily want to believe in. Like they, my life reverberates with stories about death and resurrection. Just honestly, like I, I don't know that I just choose to believe that. Like I, the trajectory of my life seems to <laughs> seems to resonate with those stories, right? Which are dark and light at the same time. I mean, they just seem to have to have both things. I agree with you um, because I think that you have to have a reference point. And if if, if if it was if everything was good all of the time, what is good? Or <laughs> bad? Can't have enough of all now. Well, you know, there's a oh, Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's another. Uh, saying here too, how we look at God makes the difference in our faith. In other words, if God is always out there, up in heaven, you know, we're praying to something that seems to be distant from us. But when God becomes personal in our lives, then we have different learning and difficulty and different sensory things. In other words, when God becomes as part, uh, comes as much a part of our life as just, you know, we got to walk and talk with a friend. God likes that kind of relationship with us because it's personal. And uh, so when you have that kind of experience with God and you take time in prayer to listen to God, then God, you begin to hear how God speaks to you. In other words, sometimes it's through intuition, 
sometimes it's through an idea that pops in your head because you're talking to God about, well, God, I don't have any idea of how to settle this. You, you know, please help me with this. And then ideas begin to come in their business, and you find that they work. But as long as God is out there, then you're down, we're down here. And that's like God worshiping a statue somewhere or something, I guess you could say. But when we open ourselves to God to a personal relationship, and that's what God wants with us, is a personal relationship, loving, then we learn different ways, and God brings about transformation in our lives. And we grow in deepening love with God, and we appreciate God's love more for us. And when we go through hard times, we know that God is with us. It may not be pleasant, but you know that if you're walking with God, God's going to get you through that somehow or another. You know. So uh, I just think, and that's a, you know, and, and having a personal relationship with God is really enhances our faith because we have a personal experience. Of it. I just want to say, I, I appreciate you saying that, but I don't think the book says that at all. No, the book doesn't say that, <laughs> say, and that's a problem. In other words, you know, if you focus it on the outside all the time, and, you're, and God is up there, then you're going to have trouble. I mean, I think it's important for us not to dismiss this book, though. Um, and, and, I, and I do want to offer to you, I think this book offers a really good thought in terms of, you know, I, I, did, I did grow up thinking that God needs me to do certain tasks. <clears throat> and I also grew up hearing that following God is really about a series of, like, moral imperatives. So theology was about being good moral people. And I think this book actually challenges both of those assumptions <laughs> in a very good way. Uh, God does not exist for us to be moral. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's a very good theological claim. Um, and God did not make us, human beings, I would say, to be moral. Uh, there's this great African thought that God made us because God thought we might enjoy it. <laughs> I actually think the book, I think that's the sum total of this book. God made us because God thought we might enjoy it. So the book says, enjoy it <laughs> and figure out how to do that. And that's wisdom. Wisdom is not depravity to please God. That's not wise. God doesn't need that. Uh, wisdom is not rule following so that God's work can be done on earth. God's work is done on earth when we properly enjoy the life God has made for us. I think that's what the book is saying. And um, one of the least joyful places uh, of my own life has been church, quite honestly. And sometimes we're so worried that reverence can't have joy in it that our hackles go up in a worship setting. Sometimes we think, oh, this is too much fun to be sacred. It must be secular. That's a gift of our puritanical heritage, by the way. Um, so I think this is an interesting thought. Now, I want to introduce another thought that's extremely controversial, if you don't mind. <laughs> the book says more than one time that the person who is unborn has an advantage over everybody who is born because they don't experience the suffering of life. You may not like that, um, but of course... 
That seems to be an interesting viewpoint when we consider things like abortion and right to life. Maybe you don't want to talk about that. (laughs) But I do think the book asks this really important question to consider. Do we believe in a right to life without inequality? Is life positive under all circumstances or, or is quality of life important? I don't know if I made that question clear. Yes, you did, because that, that's the question in anti-abortion is, you know, are you going to be responsible for that child, that girl's child? And can she, I, I mean, you may, it seems to me that as soon as you go against that, and it's not that I'm for abortion, it's, there's just this question of uh, what what is that going to be like for that baby and for that mother? Um, well, yeah, and because because I quite often see the people who are against abortion once a, you know once the baby is born, then they don't want anything to do with taking care of it. No, and so I'm thinking, well, you know, if you you know when you look at the mortality rate in the United States com- com- compared to all the other countries in the world, it's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and so, why is it bad? Because children don't get nutrition, they don't get medical care. So why do we bring these babies in if we're not, you know, if we don't provide them with any quality of life? And of course, abortion isn't the answer. It's not. It's like a terribly difficult. Um. I think the problem is socially when we have a social pr- and. and we don't have to make this about abortion, but in general, socially what we like to do is treat symptoms because causes are just really too hard. So listen, there's so many immigrants, let's just build a wall. And, and of course what that's doing is treating a symptom instead of the cause of just fundamental inequity and danger. And um, I mean, I think the truth is we don't know how to treat the cause. Is it, do, you, do you mind if I say that? <laughs> Uh, it just doesn't work I mean I can tell you like I grew up as a kid and sometimes going to abortion clinics with like protesting signs you know because it was just categorically wrong and I tell you that at the time most people who were out there protesting with me we all said well like give the child up for adoption like do that but nobody had adopted a child (laughs) And so that was the sort of weird thing. So I will tell you, I, I mean, at the risk of sounding bad, like I really believe that unless you adopt a child, you have no business, no business protesting abortion until you put your skin in the game. Yeah. Right. I think you can categorically say, like, I'm not sure that this is good, but until you help be part of a solution, I didn't see how you can actually be critical about it. So that, that's an interesting, uh, and, and here I am as your priest saying that, uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I, but I do think it's one of these things the book sort of asks us to think about. Now, I've talked about the low end, but I think it's also important to think about the high end, right? Because we also learned as kids that euthanasia is extremely bad. Like, you know, uh, it's up to God when people die. 
And I do have this thought, having been with people when they die, that we actually don't know how the dying person feels. We know what we're afraid of. <laughs> and you know, interestingly enough, I'll tell you, more people are afraid of dying than they are of death. More people are worried about the process of dying than being dead. And the number one way is like, well, they died peacefully or they won't much in pain. And that's what you hear, because that's what we're worried about is hurting. And, and we don't really know, sorry, how much it hurts, because you're not dead. <laughs> but we're terrified of how much it hurts. May I express two thoughts? Please. I've had to make the decision three different times with loved ones to the morphine drip. Yeah. Do we increase the morphine drip right now? With so much pain, nothing's going on. It's a tough decision. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's what Mike's talking about there. Uh, you, you can absolutely see the pain, uh, but it's still, it's, it's on me. I'm the family member that has to make that. The second thing about not ever being born, at my age, I know too many single people that will never fall in love again because they've been burned so badly before. So in other words, they're denying themselves the possibility of happiness because they don't want to have the sadness. And to me, that statement is, is not so much about abortion, but it's more about take risk in life, come into the life and do something with it. And uh, they're, 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 they're never extremely unhappy again because of a bad relationship, but boy, they never have the joy of a happy relationship. I'm in my mid-70s and I got married two years ago. I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. It took a long time to find it. Maybe I had to develop some wisdom uh, to understand what I, what I was choosing. Uh, and. Uh, I really feel that uh, you have to acquire that experience bad and the good in order to understand the good. Well, I mean, I think to your point, if you don't mind me saying, again, this is going to maybe sound a little bit controversial, right? But sometimes there are, and, and keep in mind, marriage at this time is not about equity men people. It's not about intimacy. It's about commoditization and social hierarchy. Sorry, it is. And in some ways, it still is normal that way. It's changing a little bit, but it's normal to be married. And we all know it's normal to have children, even if we chose not to do that. That's a norm. And if you don't, honestly, you, people will say, why didn't you have kids? As if there's something wrong with you. I mean, this is an interesting thing, right? I mean, and we do that to each other all the time. Um, but I do want to point out in this book, right, because I grew up in a, in a church that, like, divorce is never okay. It's never an option. But, you know, if you're in a relationship in which you're, you're, you're sort of trying and you're not happy, maybe you should stop chasing the wind. I, I, you know, I mean, this is an interesting book to read because in some ways it might say there's a time for war and a time for peace and there's a time for working and there's a time for quitting. I don't know what you do with it. I mean, that's just the interesting thing is there's a lot of tools here laid out and we have to figure out when it's appropriate and how it's appropriate to use these tools because, again, I, I, I want to say you could read this book as saying euthanasia, absolutely a good choice. Abortion, a great choice. Divorce can be a good choice. Um, and, or you could say, well, I just refuse to accept any of those as good choices. So it's really just saying, enjoy what you get. Or maybe it's a mixture of, of those or other viewpoints. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does make sense. But that, the chasing the wind thing was so, so real. <laughs> he said it more than once. And it's like, wow. 
I mean, if you've been a parent, sorry, you, you spent most of your parenting chasing the wind. I mean, you may be better people than I am, you know, but like trying to control outcomes and wrapping myself up in this other person is just the definition of parenthood, I think, and it's, it's chasing the wind. And, and I'll tell you, interestingly enough, you know, my, my, my mother, who I dearly love, I, I shouldn't speak to what she feels, but you know, um, I think now her boys are, 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 you know, we're way more than grown. I think there's moments where she thinks, you know, should have put him in that Montessori school in the second grade, you know, and that would have done it, <laughs> you know. Not like moments of worry, but these thoughts like, what if I'd, yeah, you know, and in that that's sense, right? <sighs> well, I don't know any parent that doesn't do that. I'm just going to be honest with you. But of course, what that is, is vanity and chasing the wind. And uh, of course, it doesn't go anywhere. It's not a deep breath, it's hyperventilating. <laughs> just to put that in, in, in perspective. And in some ways, like, we know, we know that, but it's really hard to have faith in them. <laughs> the difference between knowing and faith, I think. The truth well, is, most well, of the, Well, I, you know, that's, that's a thought I've had many times because I guess my background is, is in um, uh, engineering. And so I've always looked for proof. And, I, and when it comes to, to this, I can't prove anything. I can't prove it. Um, I've had what I would consider God moments a few times, but I'm not even absolutely sure that's what they were. It could have been coincidence. So. But here's the great difference about being a mathematician. It's like the only good thing. Being a mathematician is terrible, by the way, right? Because what mathematicians do is they make up new problems all the time. They don't ever solve them. They just make up new ones. Engineers solve problems. But, you know, the interesting thing to think about proof is um, how many examples it takes to prove a rule. All right. Infinite. Mm -hmm. And how many counterexamples it takes to disprove a rule? One. <laughs> and the truth is, and this is, this is sort of um, what you get in Euclid's geometry, without accepting a few suppositions, you can't prove anything. I mean, even numbers. We, we, we're a 10-based system, but you don't have to pick 10. You can pick 60. That's what the Babylonians did, right? So then you learn all this number theory that honestly is just... I should have been an engineer. But, I mean, the, 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 the trick is really nothing is provable. At a certain point, we don't realize this. It's all choices. Like, we've, we've chosen to live in a decimal system. Like, we choose that. Or we've chosen we can't do that completely, so we're going to do pounds and ounces. Ronald Reagan chose we're not smart enough to change. I mean, like, this is like a choice that we make, you know? And uh, in some ways, I, I, I go back to relationships that are good, I choose to believe they're good, but I have to choose that. Because if I don't make that choice, there's no amount of proof that someone is my friend or not, or that my spouse loves me. I make that choice. And in that sense, I think maybe that's what faith is, that I ultimately make an unprovable choice. It is, is faith an intellectual understanding, or is it a feeling? 
Yeah, I think that's a tough thing. I think, and I don't know the answer to it, but, yeah. I, but I know that most of the time when we talk about love, we really talk about feeling, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's not helpful. Because <laughs> again, I, I don't know about you, I am not successful in controlling my feelings. They come up. I'm successful in holding on to them and nourishing them. I can't even control what images show up in my head. I can control how long they stay there. But whether they come up, to me, feels spontaneous. I can control what images I look at, sort of out and about to some degree, which will later determine what shows up in the screen of my brain. You know, if if I see images of violence, now they're in there, and uh, I can't get them out, bottom line, I can't get them out. When they appear, I can choose how long they linger a little bit, you know? And, and, And I think there's this, problem with romanticism which happened you know in the late 1700s where it's all about feeling and um, you know I've had relationships in which man I was committed to the other person I was reliable I looked out for their best interest um, on a daily basis and I didn't feel any satisfaction in those things does that mean I didn't love them, or does that mean I did? I mean, I think that's the question before us, right? Now, ultimately, I think what's hard is love that doesn't have the good feelings is challenging for us. But is love really a set of commitments and follow-through and intentionality or is love about feelings? And maybe it can be about both, but I, but I think that's one of those bottom line things. But eventually, feeling goes away. In other words, I think feeling <coughs> helps make things attractive. But, uh, but when feelings diminish, then it's the commitment that kicks in at that time to be faithful to the vows and on the other hand there can become moments in which we're so faithful in fulfilling our vows and pouring our life into somebody else and there's no life happening and then what do we do continue to pour ourselves out and eat the bread of anxiety I I mean I I think these are like the these are I think really deep questions that don't have a yes or no answer they have this like spectrum and and i think faith shows up on that so like i think this is a really tough thing if you're pursuing god pursuing god pursuing god and you don't feel anything after a while what's going to happen to your pursuit challenge one thing you may have said if I may that when we have this emotion that comes into our head it doesn't have to stay there we can supplant it with something else because we have that free choice we have that yeah, ability agree. Agree. it's agree. just like putting a choice out for a child and, and, and taking them away from something else so. I agree although I will tell you when I'm angry I'm not very successful in saying I'm going to stop being angry No, anger is, is- I usually find myself thinking like Maybe I don't want to, no, no. <laughs> to me it's hard to say stop being angry. In general what I need to do is be angry in a place 
that doesn't cause collateral damage or blowback, I will regret later because of my commitments, <laughs> right? I mean, anyway, I, 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 I'm with you. I think it's part of what we choose to nourish, part of what we choose to nourish. But sometimes we can't, I don't know, we can flip Not that instantaneously, right. yeah. I'm afraid I'm making a really exciting book dull for you. You know, I think these, these questions, um, I don't think 75 or 100 years ago people thought about these questions. I think that as we've changed, as we've changed our perspective of God, that instead of him being up there or she or whatever up there, it's down among every one of us and in our relationships with with each other. I think these questions become come up to to kind to kind of see how we relate to each other and to the world. What do you say a hundred years ago? Because because hundred years ago we thought of as being up, up there somewhere and apart from us, but he's not. He's here with us. Is it, do you think God is, is in heaven? I know. I think he's here. Well, what, what I mean, well, one of the thoughts I've had is that is 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 God between. See, to me, heaven isn't there. Right. Heaven. I've been thinking about this. Heaven is this infinitesimally small veil between me and right there and that's where God exists whatever God is that's where God exists I, I, I just think that I think a hundred years ago I, I think for eternity God just the uh, just being human has I, I believe for eternity a had us always question that. I mean, think about it. Or it, it, I can't believe that humans are the entire, we're in the whole of being, haven't had the same questions we're asking. I mean, maybe in a different way, maybe with not such a depth and no science in, in, inserted, but, but I can't believe that the heart and the head in all humans has always worked this way. I think we're looking at our own society and other societies they may have, and there could be a lot of this that has been going on for a long time. I think I don't. I, I think we're giving ourselves too much credit or discredit to say that other prior times haven't thought about it. It's I think been there somewhere or another. Can I give a one firm quote for just what we came through for the last uh, two months? Uh, Ten to the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Just for the political season, we just came through. Oh, <laughs> I read that. <laughs> I read really that. Use that one. Yeah. Hey, um, you know, to Lee's point, just to go back to the book, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. And what we love to do is say, like, ah, this is new. We have, you know, yeah. But there's nothing new. There's nothing new. But and human you know, has not changed from no. the beginning of time. It, you know, one of the questions here was the natural rhythms of life seem monotonous, offering nothing new. Um, explain why you agree or disagree. What I disagree with is that maybe they're not new to 
of the world, but they're new to me. Yes, precisely. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're new to each one of us. And, uh, yeah. and, and even in my lifetime, in the middle 70s, they're different from each age, each decade or whatever. They begin to feel they're different. So it doesn't, and I don't think it changed 500 years ago. Circumstances around us change. Yeah, well, yes, that changes, but in terms of, of uh, yeah, but in terms of how we... I'm going to give you one more word, and then we get to do this again. We get to do the whole book again. One more word that's helpful to know. This shows up in um, 720. Surely there is no one on earth so righteous as to do good without ever sinning. And it's really important that you know what that word means. <laughs> sinning. It is not a moral transgression or breaking some commandment. This is an archery term that means missing the target. So if the target's the bullseye and you're right of the bullseye half of an inch, you sinned. You missed the mark. So it's really... Uh, righteous doesn't mean perfect, it means just. So I think this is really important to think about. Um, this just one verse claim here Sometimes in our pursuit of justice, we miss the mark. And this is why I like this confession we say on Sunday mornings, forgive us for the evil done on our behalf. Because I drive a Toyota Prius, which is great for the earth, except for mining the metal in the battery, is really bad. And in my pursuit of justice, well, it's not as... I mean, frankly, I think this is saying life is not as black and white as we sometimes like to believe. So there's this important bit, not that we're failure as people, but that we often miss our mark. Of course, the biggest problem would be that we stop shooting in the archery world. If you miss the mark and quit, that's probably the biggest failure you can do. The key after you miss the mark is to take aim again and possibly change your aim but to keep trying. So, helpful to know, I hope biblically, that sin is not like courting evil or an alliance with the devil or, um, again, a moral transgression. It means you miss the goal. Miss the goal. And maybe we'll get to talk about that more next time. Now, listen, next week, that's November the 21st. I'm not going to be here. <laughs> And I think you deserve a week off for Thanksgiving break anyway. So we'll not meet next week. Two weeks from today, we'll come back and talk about the positive message from Ecclesiastes and wrap up our discussion then.